Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Part one of our series is entitled God's Final Call. In this study, we will examine the first angel's message in detail. And we want to see what the issue really is all about and how we can understand what the issue of worship and how that relates to us. This title comes from the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. In Revelation, we read about the three angels' messages, which is the theme of our series. The three angels' messages is the last call of mercy to a perishing world before Jesus comes. We know that because immediately after the giving of the three angels' messages, we see a scene of Jesus Christ coming in glory to take his people home. Today, we want to focus on the first angels' message. And we find the first angels' message in Revelation chapter 14 and verses 6 and 7. Let's read it together. Verse 6 says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Here we see this message has a worldwide scope. It's a message that goes to the whole world. It's a message that is called the everlasting gospel. What is this everlasting gospel? What is it about this message that will go to the whole world that the Bible calls the everlasting gospel? Let's read the next verse and find out. Verse 7 says, Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. This message that is called the everlasting gospel deals with the very important issue of worship. It's an issue that is so vital that the salvation or the damnation of those who hear this message is dependent. It's vital to understand the subject of this message. Who is it that we are called upon to fear? Who is it that we're called upon to give glory to? And who is it that we must worship? It says, worship Him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of waters. In our study, we want to find the Bible answer to this question, who we are to worship, this vital question of worship that is the very last message that goes to the world. So the question is, who is this God that we are to worship? Who is this God that this message has a worldwide scope to call the attention of the people to? We want to find our answers from the scriptures. And if we were to ask the question to the Bible as to who this God is, who is this God that created heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters? We find the answer recorded in a number of places. One of them is in the book of Acts. We read about it in chapter 14 and verse 15. This is what the scripture says. And saying, sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Did you catch that? The creator of heaven, earth, and the sea is called the living God. We're using the Bible to give us further information about who is this God that we are to worship? Who is this God that we are to fear? Who is this God that we are to give glory to? Now we learn that he is also called the living God. Let's read another Bible description of this living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Again, from the book of Acts, 
This time we'll go to chapter 17 and verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. We see another description here for this living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. He is called the Lord of heaven and earth. We need to combine these definitions together because they are talking about the same person. The living God, the Lord of heaven and earth, is the creator of all things. He is the one spoken of in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. We want to consult the highest authority on this question. So we want to make sure that we have this right. We want to make sure that our conclusions are accurate as to the identity of this being that we are to worship. And in order for us to get accurate information, we must consult the highest source. The highest authority on this topic is none other than Jesus Christ. You see, friends, He's the only one who came from earth to heaven, uh, from heaven to earth to reveal to us these things, these truths. He came to reveal to us vital information for our salvation. One such place, Jesus identifies for us the identity of the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. Let's read about it in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. This is what the Bible says. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Jesus is very clear as to the identity of the Lord of heaven and earth. He said, it is his Father. You see, this is the only true God. This is an identification from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the highest authority on this topic. We read a confirmation of that in another Bible passage in John chapter 17 and verse 3, where we see Jesus identifying for us who is this only true God. Praying to his Father, Jesus says in verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You see, friends, this identification is important for us. What we're doing is we're using the scriptures and allowing them to interpret and define for us the terms that it uses. And in our search, we are seeking to locate the identity of the person spoken of in Revelation 14, 7. And we found according to Jesus, it's the Father. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the only true God. And that last characteristic or that last description that we read of, Him being the living God, we can read about and find how that is confirmed in the book of Thessalonians. We turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And it says there, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. We see here a very important combination of descriptions. The Father, the living God, is called the true God. He's the one that has a Son. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the identity of the person spoken of in Revelation 14, verse 7, is none other than the Father. You see, it's the Father who is the only true God. It's the Father who is the living God. And it's the Father who is the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. 
And so the first angel's message that calls upon the world to worship God, give glory to Him, is speaking about the Father. We need to find this clearly in the scriptures because it's confirmed in many, many other places. Jesus Christ, of course, gave us this information, but we see that Christ elaborates on this further because He is the only one that knows the Father best. He is the only one that is most acquainted with the identity and the character of His Father, the only true God. We know that because it's recorded in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. Notice what it says. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. You see, Jesus Christ is the one that knows the Father best. And the purpose and mission of Jesus Christ in coming from heaven to earth was to reveal to us the Father so that we can truly worship Him. You see, the problem in the world today is that the whole world has been deceived over the issue of worship. That's why God sends the final message to the world. And this message deals with who we worship. That is why it's vital for us to understand who we are to worship. And it's vital for us to have satisfactory, complete, solid information. And we find that from Jesus Christ himself. We're going to look at an incident in the life of Jesus where he clarifies and elaborates for us on this question a little more. One day, Jesus was asked a question by a scribe. I like the stories of when Jesus is asked questions because many times the Pharisees and the elders will try and trick him by using difficult cornering questions. And it's amazing to see the wisdom of Jesus Christ in answering these questions. One such day, a scribe came to Jesus. We know that a scribe worked as a copier of the scriptures. You see, at the time, they did not have printers or photocopiers. If somebody wanted a copy of the scriptures, a scribe had to actually sit down and write it out. <clears throat> and this scribe, we find, came to Jesus with a question about a very important topic. We read about this story in Mark chapter 12. In Mark 12, beginning with verse 28, see what the Bible says. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? What an important question. Which is the first commandment of all? The scribe here, of course, was referring to the commandments and instructions that God gave, not just the Ten Commandments. From the Old Testament scriptures, in copying them time and again, the scribe had come to learn the basic foundation of the gospel. And he was using this knowledge to try and test Jesus by asking the question, which is the first of all the commandments? Jesus then answers him. And in his answer, Jesus pinpoints one particular area of the Old Testament. He begins his answer with a specific verse, and he quotes it from the book of Deuteronomy. Let's continue reading in Mark 12 and see what Jesus said. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Isn't that amazing? Of all the passages and scriptures at the hand of Jesus from the Old Testament, he pinpointed to one passage. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. This is the passage he selected. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is the foundation, and this is the first of all the commandments. This is vital because this foundation 
forms the basis on which we can build the rest of what Jesus said. Notice carefully what Jesus said, and then we'll analyze the verse a little closer. Jesus continues by saying, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. You see here, the principle of loving God and loving our neighbor is based firmly on a very important foundation. That foundation is knowing something, is knowing that the Lord our God is one Lord. You see, many times if we were to, if we were to ask the question to many Christians today as to which is the first commandment, the most common answer is to love God and love our neighbor, which is true. But in order for us to love God, we must first know which God. We must have the identity of who will receive our love, who will receive our praise and our adoration. Who is it that we are to give our firmest loyalties to? That's why a very important foundation before we can love God is to know who He is. Jesus begins by identifying that foundation. He tells us the most important thing is to know something, that the Lord our God is one Lord. Based on this knowledge, we are to love this one Lord with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is a vital principle in the scriptures. The identity of the God that we worship is important. Otherwise, we end up in a confused worship. We worship what we do not know. That's why the angel's message in the last book in the Bible that we're studying today deals with true worship directed to the true God. That's why it's important for us to identify who is this true God. This is really what the issue is all about in the last days. Who is it that we're going to worship? How is it are we, that we're going to worship Him? When is it that we're going to worship Him? But all this hinges on the identity of the one receiving worship. Let's read the rest of the story and see how Jesus and the scribe ended this conversation. Continuing, it says, And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but He. What an interesting admission. You see, the scribe knew and understood the truth. He knew the right answer before he came to ask Jesus. His question was actually a test for Jesus. We see here that Jesus passed the test. Jesus understood the principles of the scriptures. He understood the basic foundation of the gospel is to know that there is one God and none other but He, and to worship Him with all the heart, soul, and mind, and to love Him and give Him our best adoration. The scribe had learned that there is one God and none other from the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus confirmed the answer of the scribe in his answer in verse 34. Let's read it. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? According to Jesus, this scribe was not far from the kingdom of God. He had understood the basic principles of the gospel. He learned that from the Old Testament. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves is, who were they speaking about? Who was the subject of their conversation? Who is it that Jesus referred to when he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Who is it that the scribe referred to when he said, There is one God and none other but He. Who is this person? The answer we will find from the scriptures. We turn to another passage in the book of John where we find Jesus himself identifying for us who the subject of their conversation was. Who is it that was the God of the Jews? 
that they profess to worship. We read about that in John chapter 8 and verse 54. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. According to Jesus, the God of the Jews is the Father, his Father. This is the only true God, the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth, as we have found. He is the one that the scriptures refer to as the Lord our God is one Lord. You see, this identification by Jesus confirms what we have found so far. And this is who the scribe was referring to when he said there is one God and none other but he. And in answer to that, Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of, of God. Wouldn't you like Jesus to say that to you? We don't want to be far from the kingdom. That's why God sends a message in the last days called the three angels messages to bring everybody as close as possible, all those who choose to receive and apply the message so that they can be ready to be taken to the heavenly kingdom. This truth is found not only in the words and instruction of Jesus Christ. We find this throughout the scriptures. We'll look at a few more examples. We'll look at the apostles of Jesus Christ and we'll see what they had to say about this important topic. We turn to Paul writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. And we read the following. He says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Did you catch that? The Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, says that to us as believers, as Christians, as those who accept Jesus Christ, to us, there is only one God. And then he identifies who this one God is. He says, it is the Father. You see, this is in perfect harmony with what Jesus came from heaven to earth to reveal. To us, there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things. This is who the first angel's message talks about. He is the only true God. He is the living God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. This information is important for us to understand so that we can worship Him, knowing who He is. When we present this information, a number of people think, and they come up with a question. Because in their mind, in their thinking, in their understanding perhaps, they have been taught that God is not only one, that God perhaps is more than one. So when the emphasis of Jesus and the apostles is brought forward that God is one, and that this one God is the Father, some people come with a question, a very honest and valid question, regarding a Hebrew word that is used in the scriptures to refer to God. And this Hebrew word is the word Elohim. This Hebrew word is the word used for God. We find it in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word God there is the Hebrew Elohim. Now in Hebrew, if you look up the word Elohim, you'll find that it's a plural word. <clears throat> and so people ask the question naturally, the word for God is a plural word, therefore God must be more than one. But this conclusion contradicts the information that we have found all through the scriptures. Why is it that this is so? Is there a way that we can understand this harmoniously? And the answer is yes. You see, a lot of people don't realize that in Hebrew language, in the Hebrew tongue, there is something called the plural of majesty. 
That is, they use a plural word to refer to a single individual or object, thus denoting its majesty or greatness. Once again, don't take my word for it. We must see this used and defined by the scriptures for us. We have a few examples, but just look at one of them. We find it in Exodus chapter 7. And this is a very interesting passage. Exodus chapter 7 and verse 1. Notice what it says. And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Notice there that the word for God is the Hebrew word Elohim. A plural word. God here is calling Moses Elohim. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that God split up Moses into more than one person and sent him to Pharaoh? Obviously not. Nobody believes that. And if you did, some people might think there's something wrong with you. Why then does God use a plural word, Elohim, and apply it to Moses, a single individual? And the answer is only a few verses later, a few chapters later rather. In chapter 11 and verse 3, notice how this is clarified for us. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Did you catch that? The man Moses was very great in the sight of all the people, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. He was very great because God had told him, Moses, I have made you Elohim. I have made you a God to Pharaoh. In other words, I have magnified you. I have exalted you. And I'm going to put you in a position to Pharaoh similar to my position. And in describing this position, God said to Moses, I have made you Elohim. So here we see that the usage of the word Elohim, according to the scriptures, applies with sing to singular individuals denoting majesty and greatness. We find in the scriptures that every time the word Elohim is used of the true God, it denotes greatness and majesty rather than plurality. This is again confirmed for us in many parts of the scriptures. We look at another example that tells us who is the great head of all things, the great father of all. It's talked about in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You see, the Father is the head of all. He is the one God and Father of all, because He is the only true God, and there is none other but He. This issue of worship is important because Jesus talked about it. And it's important because Satan has caused confusion over the identity of God and over how and when we are to worship Him. This is why the first angel's message comes to the world at the very closing scenes of Earth's history. The true worshipers, those who heed the message of the first angel, who will respond to the call to worship God, are called true worshipers. Jesus talks about the true worshipers. One day he was visiting with his disciples the town of Samaria, and as they were approaching the town, he stopped at a well. And the famous story of Jesus with the woman at the well comes to mind. In that story, Jesus talked about the true worshipers. We can read about it in John chapter 4. And as we look at this verse, notice who Jesus said the true worshipers will worship. John chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. You see, the true worshipers worship the Father. They understand the identity of who they worship. They understand that He is the only true God, the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth. That's who the first angel's message is talking about. 
I know that it is your desire to be a true worshiper so that you can be ready when Jesus comes to take the true worshipers who worship God in spirit and truth home. It's important to understand how we are to worship this true God. How is it that we can worship the Father? How can we approach the Father? What is the way, the correct way to do this? The answer is given to us by Jesus Christ Himself. You remember what He said in John chapter 14 and verse 6. John 14, 6 is a beautiful verse. It says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Only through Jesus Christ can we come to the Father. And this extends to our worship. So in order to worship God aright, we must not only know who we are worshiping, that's the Father, we must also know how we can come to the, to the Father. What is the way that we can come to the Father in worship, in praise, in prayers, and in thanksgiving? And the answer is Jesus. So not only must we know the Father, but we must know the way to the Father. We must know Jesus. We must understand this position that Jesus holds as being the way to the Father. Why is this so? And how does that affect our worship? This is what we want to understand in this section of our study. The identity and the position of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what is it that makes Him so special and so unique that only He can say, I am the way to the Father. No man can come to the Father except by me. We see an interesting verse that sheds some light on this question for us. This verse will give us an insight that perhaps we haven't looked at too often. We read about it in John chapter 17 of verse 3. It says there, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We read this verse earlier, but the insight here is knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ is vital for our eternal life. Not only knowledge about them, but knowledge meaning knowing them personally and intimately. We found out who the true God is. Now we want to find out more about Jesus. And this question deals with our salvation. That's why the three angels' messages are messages on which the salvation of the world hangs. They are messages that deal with worship. What is it about Jesus Christ that sets Him apart? What is it that we must know about Jesus Christ that is linked to our eternal life? We can find the answer in the Scriptures. Let's look at this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and see what it says. 1 Corinthians 3, 23 tells us, And ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. If we read it in the contemporary English version, it says, And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Isn't that interesting? The Bible says that we belong to Christ, but it also says that Christ belongs to God. Have you ever thought about that? Why does Christ belong to God? How does Christ belong to God? This is an important question, and the answer is in the Scriptures. And finding the answer will help us understand why is it that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. This will help us understand the position of Christ. This will help us appreciate the position of the Father and how we can come to Him in worship. After all, a relationship with the Father and the Son is what eternal life is all about. Let's read about the answer to our question. 
How is it that Christ belongs to God? Well, the best person to answer this question will be God Himself. Does He tell us how Christ belongs to Him? And the answer is yes. If you remember the story at the baptism of Jesus, we actually read where the Father Himself speaks with a voice from heaven. In speaking from heaven, the Father tells us how Christ belongs to Him. Let's read the familiar story together. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Isn't that beautiful? The Father says, This is my beloved Son. You see, friends, this is how Christ belongs to God. He belongs to God because He is His Son. The Father Himself said those words. You see, this issue is very important. How Christ belongs to God, the fact that He is His Son. We know it is important from the very fact that God Himself spoke it with, a, with His own words, with His own voice from heaven. You see, the Father could have sent an angel to go down to earth and tell everyone, listen, this is my Son. But He didn't. He could have sent a prophet, but He didn't. He could have sent someone like John the Baptist, but He didn't. You see, the Father saw fit that He Himself must give that declaration. He Himself must utter those words. He Himself must tell the listening world how this baptized person belongs to Him. That this is none other than His own Son. This is confirmed for us because we find that God says the same thing on another occasion. We find a very similar account where the Father Himself speaks with a voice from heaven. If you search the New Testament, you will find that it is not very common where the Father Himself speaks with a voice from heaven. He rarely does it. He actually does it a number of times that can be counted on one hand only. He only does it three times. Don't you think that with so, free, uh, so few times where the Father speaks, don't you think that He has something important to say? I certainly think so. And we find that because He repeats the same information. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17 and see what the Father says in that story at the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, 5, While He yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Isn't that amazing? The Father says the same thing on another occasion, with an audible voice from heaven. He says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then He adds a very interesting phrase, Hear ye Him. You see, we are to heed and listen to the instruction of Christ because He is God's Son. That's the authority that He has. This is the qualification according to the Father. He says, listen to Him, listen to what He has to say because He is my Son. You see, this helps us understand why only Christ is the way to the Father. And as we look at what the Bible reveals about this Son of God, we will understand better why he is the only one to the Father, the only way, the only truth, the only medium and mediator between us and the Father. So the identity of Christ, we have heard it from the Father's lips, the highest authority of all, the living and true God. 
the one God and none other but He. Let's see how Jesus Himself identified who He was. We read about that in John chapter 10 and verse 36. Notice what Jesus says. Say ye of Him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. You see, Christ here identified Himself as the Son of God. The Jews, of course, were not happy with that. They wanted to stone Him. He did not deny the truth that the Father declared. He knew who He was, and He declared who He was to the Pharisees. And this caused their anger, as we shall see in a few minutes. So Jesus identified Himself as the Son of God in harmony with what the Father said. This is a double witness that we really do not need to add any more to. There should be no question in anyone's mind as to who Jesus is. And yet, there are many people who question. There are many people who don't really understand what the Scripture means when it says, the Son of God. This is what we want to uncover today, and this is what will help us understand the unique position of Christ. Let's look at the disciples. Let's see what they had to say. Did they understand the correct identity of Christ? We read about that in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16. It says, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was answering a question that Jesus had just asked. You see, Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? That's a question that Jesus asks each and every one of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you understand who He really is? Do you understand His identity? Do you comprehend the meaning of who Christ really is? That's the question. And Simon answered that statement and that question of Jesus with that famous answer. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, the disciples understood the identity of Christ. This was so important that if we read a little later in the same chapter, a few verses later, we find that Jesus says, he is going to build His church on this rock. This rock, of course, is the declaration that Peter gave. The church of Jesus Christ is built on the fact that He is the Son of God. And Jesus assures us that this foundation is so firm and solid that even the gates of hell shall not be able to prevail against the church. You see, Satan knows this fact. And Satan is in the business of destroying this foundation of the church. And to a large degree, he has succeeded in destroying the church's understanding of the position of the Son of God. We will see that as we progress in our study. You see, Satan knows that if God's people understand the identity of Christ, he will not be able to overcome them. If not only they understand, but if they have that relationship with Jesus Christ, if they build on that foundation, as the scripture says we should, he has no way of overcoming it. And so he attacks that foundation. But let's see how God laid a very solid platform of truth for his people. Not, the, not just the Jews, not just the Christians who came from Judaism, but all the Gentiles. Remember the story of Paul, who was a persecutor of the church? He murdered many and caused the death of many. And Paul one day, as he was traveling to carry on his business of persecution, we know the story, he was met by Jesus on the way to Damascus, and Paul was converted. Have you ever wondered how this experience affected Paul? It totally changed him. It made him 
a Christian. It made him a believer in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but Jesus was going to use this man to build his church among the Gentiles. It's interesting that the Bible tells us and reveals to us a very important fact that perhaps we don't think of. Have you ever wondered what was the first sermon that Paul ever preached as a Christian? What was his topic in preaching that Sabbath for the very first time as a Christian? You know, that's an interesting question that the Bible answers for us. We find the answer in the book of Acts, chapter 9 and verse 20. Notice what the Bible says. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. That was the very first sermon that Paul ever preached as a Christian. He preached a sermon about the foundation of the church. He preached a sermon about the rock upon which Christ was going to build his church. You see, as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles, he had to begin at the foundation. And the very first sermon he ever preached was about the Son of God. There's something important about this point. This point keeps coming up. The Son of God. The Father spoke it from heaven. Jesus identified himself. The apostles understood and declared this truth and preached it to the whole world. Why is this so important? What is it that makes this so important? We will find the answer from the Bible. Not only were the disciples and the apostles understanding this truth, but when Jesus declared this truth to others, they rose up in anger. We talked about the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus. Now let's read about it in John chapter 5 and see how this story starts getting really interesting over this point of the Sonship of Christ. John chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? Because he said that God was his Father. When he said that, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. You see, in their minds, this was a greater offense than the false accusation of Sabbath breaking that they leveled at Jesus. You see, when Jesus says that God was his father, it made him equal with God. And this angered the Pharisees. We want to explore that a little bit. We want to make sure we understand this point. You see, Jesus said that God was his father. This naturally makes him equal with God. The Pharisees understood that, and we must understand that too. But it made them angry. But it should affect us in believing and understanding the true position of Jesus Christ. What is it about the fact that Christ said that God was his Father that made him equal with God? You see, we need to make no mistake about it, friends. Jesus Christ is equal to God. But the question is, why? Does he answer this question? And the answer is right there in that verse. His equality with God is based on something. It's based on the fact that God is his father. You see, his sonship is the basis of his equality. When we talk about the equality of Christ, we're really talking about his divinity. We're talking about his divine nature. The basis of that is the fact that the, the father of Christ is God. 
The basis of it is the fact that he is the Son of God. That's why it was so important that the Father had to declare it from heaven. That's why the Church of Christ is built on this fact. And that's why the enemies of Christ attacked this declaration that he gave. They wanted to kill him. Keep in mind that when Jesus said those words, he did not say to the Pharisees, I am equal with God. He said to the Pharisees, God is my Father. This naturally and automatically made him equal. You see, Jesus gave them the foundation and the basis of his equality. He says, in essence, I am the Son of God. And as such, you should listen to me. They wanted to kill him. You see, this divinity and this equality of Christ is a point that the devil hates vehemently. And he is seeking to attack. In many places and many times, Satan has sought to cast doubt on the divinity of Christ and to question his equality. Satan, of course, knows and understands what this divinity and equality is based on. So in order for Satan to attack the equality of Christ, <coughs> he attacks its foundation. He attacks its basis. And what's that? His sonship. Remember the story of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness? Let's read about it. It's in the Bible, Luke chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. What was the devil doing? He was questioning and doubting by questioning, causing doubt as to the identity of Christ. He was attacking the sonship of Christ. What he was really doing was attacking the position of Christ. Who Christ really is. The greatness of Christ, the divinity of Christ. All these things are based on his relationship to God. They are based on his sonship. And so the devil attacks the sonship of Christ. He says, if you are really the son of God. This attack of Satan on the sonship and the identity of Christ has not stopped. And most of the world today is confused as to who Jesus really is and what the son of God really means according to the Bible. This is what we want to find out. We want to see what does it mean in the scriptures when it says Jesus is the Son of God. How is he a son? Does the Bible ever answer this question? And this is a vital truth. And the answer is yes. We find the answer to this question in John chapter 3 and verse 16, a familiar passage to many. This is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This beautiful verse that is famous throughout the whole world, even among non-Christians, tells us how Christ is the Son of God. Do you think it's a coincidence that this verse happens to be the most famous verse? I don't think so. This verse tells us that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. It tells us more about his sonship. It tells us he is a son because he's the only begotten son. It describes to us how he is a son. And if we were to ask a follow-on question, just to make sure, who was he begotten of? We find the answer in the same book in John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14 tells us, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the Bible tells us and answers for us our questions. It tells us who Jesus is. 
He is the Son of God. It tells us how He is a Son. It says He's the only begotten Son. And it also tells us who He was begotten of. He is the only begotten of the Father. Now some people wonder what only begotten means. All you have to do is look up the meaning of the word and you'll find that begotten simply means to be born. Christ is the only begotten of the Father. He's the only begotten Son of the Father. This Sonship involves everything that is so special and unique about Christ, as we, sh as we shall find out. But let's ask a few more questions and see if we can learn from the Scriptures more information about the identity of Christ, particularly His Sonship. For example, if we were to ask the question, when was Christ begotten of the Father? We already found out the answers to the questions we asked earlier. Does the Bible give us more information? Does the Bible reveal to us when Christ was begotten of the Father? Let's have a look in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we read the following. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of, from of old, from the days of eternity. You see, the prophet Micah gives us a prophecy of the birthplace of Christ. It tells us that when Christ will be born, he will be, he will be born in Bethlehem. And this verse was used by the elders of the Jews to answer the questionings of Herod when the wise men from the east came to visit Jesus. It told them where Christ was going to be born. And this prophecy of Christ gives us a very important insight. It tells us that the goings forth of Christ are from of old. In other words, it tells us that when Christ will be born on earth and be the prince and ruler of his people, this is not the beginning of his existence. Actually, Christ existed way before that, even from the days of eternity. And if we look up the Hebrew meaning for the expression goings forth, that Micah uses, we will find that it means family descent. In other words, Micah is pointing us into the past. He's pointing us into the eternity of the past to look for the family descent of Christ. This tells us plainly that Christ already was the Son of God way before Bethlehem. Let's look in that direction that Micah points us to. Let's go to the past and see, does the Bible give us any more information about things that happened in the past, way back from the days of eternity, that deals with answering this vital question? It's interesting that the answer is found by the wisest author of the Scriptures. God selected the wisest man who contributed to writing the Scriptures to help us answer this question. We find the answer in the book that Solomon authored, the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, and we'll begin reading from verses 22 to 25. Let's read and see. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way, before His works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. What a beautiful description. This speaks of something that happened before anything was ever created. You see, it was Christ himself who was speaking through Solomon. 
And he was speaking of that most important event. He was speaking of the time when he was brought forth. You see, Christ, under the title of wisdom, which is the title of Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 1, 24, as wisdom, and under that title, Christ was speaking through Solomon. And Solomon was recording for us this most wondrous and amazing event. How that Christ was brought forth from the Father before anything was created. Notice that it doesn't tell us the details of how this takes place. And it would not be wise for us to speculate and try and understand that which God has not revealed. But it does reveal to us very clearly that this event took place before anything was ever created. That the Lord possessed Christ and that Christ was brought forth before anything was ever created. And that's what makes Christ the only begotten Son of God. You see, if you look up the Hebrew words brought forth, you will find that their meaning is to be born. Christ was speaking of His birth before anything was created. So that by the time creation took place, there already was a father and a son. Let's continue reading a few verses onward and see how this is brought out. Let's read verses 26 down to 30. It says, While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there, when he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. You see, Christ here makes it clear that when creation took place, he already was there. He says, I was by him. I was daily his delight. This is none other than the Son of God speaking. Many times, when this truth is presented, people start asking and wondering a very common question. They say, well, if Christ is the only begotten Son of God, we see that plainly in the Scriptures. We also see plainly that He was begotten before anything was ever created. The question then is, well, does that mean that Christ was created? And the answer is a definite no. You see, the word begotten does not mean created. We can use the scriptures to find the answer. Let's see how the Bible reveals a distinction, a very clear distinction between what begotten means and what created means. And this will help us understand the unique position that Christ holds as the only begotten Son of God. To help us see the distinction, God gives us information relating to these two words. Let's read in Ezekiel chapter 28. In reading in Ezekiel 28, keep in mind, this is a, a prophecy, a lamentation particularly, that God, through his servant Ezekiel, is referring to Lucifer, his angel that he created that fell and rebelled. And in speaking about Lucifer, God uses a very interesting word that we will note together as we read this passage. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and 15. It says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. 
Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Did you catch that? Twice the Bible tells us plainly that Lucifer was created. This is important to keep in mind. Lucifer was created, a created being made out of nothing. There is a vast distinction because Christ was not created. Christ, the Bible says, was begotten. He is the only begotten. And as we read in the book of Proverbs, twice God identified for us that he possessed his son by the description of Christ when he says, I was brought forth. You see, Christ was brought forth. He was begotten. Lucifer was created. It would be a terrible tragedy to understand these two things to mean the same thing. In essence, it would mean that Lucifer and Christ are equal. And that is the purpose of Satan to accomplish. Never believe anyone who tells you that Christ was created. Christ is the only begotten Son. And as the only begotten Son, He's the only one who was born of God. And He confirms that for us in the Scriptures. Let's notice how the Father confirms the position of His Son as possessing these divine attributes in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9, speaking of creation. Notice what it says. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hitting God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. God created all things by Jesus Christ. This tells us that Christ is a divine being. This confirms to us the fact that He could not be created because all things were created by Him. This establishes the fact that He is the only begotten Son, and as such, he is equal with God. He can create. It was actually Christ who created Lucifer. And so there is a vast difference that we must keep in mind between these two words, between begotten and created. But let's go back to the scriptures and find if there is any confirmation for this information that we have found so far. If Christ was indeed begotten of the Father, way back in eternity of the past, before anything was created. Do we find evidence for this in the Old Testament? In other words, did the prophets and writers of the Old Testament and the people living in those times recognize that God had a son? Let's have a look at a few examples from the Old Testament. We'll start with Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25. You remember the story, the story of the three Hebrew boys who were cast into the fire. It says there, he answered, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. How did the heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar, know that the God of the Hebrews had a son? 
the answer is he knew that because these Hebrew boys were faithful missionaries. You see, they had declared the faith that they understood. They had declared the truth that they had learned from the scriptures. And in the form of the fourth, Nebuchadnezzar recognized that this must be who you were telling me about. The form of the fourth looks like the Son of God. See, some people read this passage and they look at different meanings and they try and discount the truth that Nebuchadnezzar confessed. They say, well, Nebuchadnezzar says uh, he is the son of gods. I see the, for the form of the fourth is like the son of the gods, trying to question the truth that he declared. But if you notice, the key word in this passage is son. You see, the key point that Nebuchadnezzar was identifying was that there was a son of someone in the fire. If we read a little later in the same passage, the few verses following confirm that he was referring to the God of the Hebrews, not the heathen gods. Nebuchadnezzar was saying that the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. He knew and understood that God had a son. You see, the Hebrew boys were familiar with the scriptures. They were familiar with the writings of Solomon. They read Proverbs chapter 8 that we read. They understood that God, the God that they worship, the only true God, the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth had a son and that he loved them so much that he promised one day to send his son to be their sacrifice. And Micah, the prophet, prophesied of when, where rather, that will take place, that Christ, when he would come, would be born in Bethlehem. But let's look at a few other passages. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 4. Notice what the scripture says there. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? What an interesting question that the wise man asks. He relays all these creative divine acts. And then he asks this question and credits these divine creative acts to two beings. In his question, he identifies them by their relationship to each other. He says, what is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell. This means that if there is a son, there is also a father. A father and a son responsible for all the works of creation. You see, the Old Testament writers were familiar with the fact that God had a son, that his son was also possessing the divine nature in that he also creates. And the Bible told us that God created all things by Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, well, this is plain in the Old Testament. But did Jesus teach this when he was on earth? Did Jesus actually teach that he was brought forth from the Father? And the answer is yes. You see, this truth is so vital and important that the church of Christ is built on it. God gives us enough information in the scriptures so that our faith can rest solidly on this rock. We don't need to doubt. We don't need to be deceived by the lies and the deceptions of Satan over this question. We don't need to give in to the doubtful question that Satan asked Jesus, if thou be the Son of God. God gives us ample proof of this fact in inspiration. And in the writings of the gospel, we find Jesus confirming the fact that he was brought forth from God or that he was actually born or came out 
from God. Let's read a few examples. Our first one is in John chapter 8 and verse 42. And it says, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. You see, friends, Jesus clearly taught the truth of who he is. He says that he proceeded forth and came from God. If you look up the meaning of that word in the Greek, you'll find that it confirms exactly and harmonizes with everything that we have found. That he was really brought forth out of the Father. He proceeded forth. He came out of God. The only way we can relate to that is how the word begotten is defined also as being born. Now we need to be very careful because the Bible gives us this information and does not go further. It doesn't tell us the exact details of how Christ proceeded forth and came from God. And we need to be mindful of the scripture which tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we might keep the words of this law. God has revealed for us clearly that Christ is his only begotten son. He gives us enough information to confirm and to clarify and establish that his son was not created, but that his son actually proceeded forth and came from him. And he stops there. And we can only go as far as God goes and stop there knowing that our faith is established on the firm word of inspiration. This is not the only place that Jesus spoke about that. Let's look at another passage in the book of John, chapter 16, verse 27, says, For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. You see, the love that the Father has to the disciples is because of something. Because they believed something. They believed something that the Jews refused to acknowledge. They believed that Christ came out from God. That simply says that Christ is the Son of God. You see, Jesus told that truth very plainly. His disciples believed it and understood it, and Christ actually lost his life because he did not deny this fact of who he really was. Why is this so important? Why are we stressing this aspect of the identity of Christ and particularly his sonship? Remember, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. In saying this, Jesus excluded everyone else. And we saw that the identity of Christ as the Son of God is to the exclusion of everyone else in that the scripture says he is the only begotten Son. Nobody else is in that position. And Christ being the only begotten Son means something. Now we're going to see at what that means and how that affects Christ in making him hold that unique position that nobody else holds. You see, if Christ is the Son of God, did he inherit anything from his Father? That's a good question that the scripture addresses. The answer we can find it in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. Speaking of Christ, it says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, 
being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Christ is the express image of the Father's person. He is all the brightness of his glory and majesty. And then it tells us that what sets Christ apart from the angels, what sets Christ higher than the angels, is the fact that he has something by inheritance. You see, Christ being the only begotten Son of God means that he has an inheritance. Well, what does he inherit? The answer is right there. We just read it. He has a more excellent name by inheritance. Well, what name might that be? None other than the name of his Father. If you study the word name in the scriptures, you will find that it means a number of things. It doesn't just mean the designation of who someone is. Name in the scriptures means character. Name in the scriptures also means authority. We know that because when Moses was asking God and he said, show me thy glory, God said to Moses, I will declare my name. And in declaring his name, God declared his characteristics. Name means character. It means authority. Jesus said, I am come in my father's name. That was the backing authority behind him that gave credence to what he said and did. Name in the scriptures also means nature. The Bible says that when God created Adam, he called their name Adam, speaking of Adam and Eve. The word Adam is not only the name of the first man, it's actually the name of the human race. The word Adam in Hebrew actually means human being or the man, the human race. So the word name also signifies nature. Name also means power, means authority, as we said, and it also is the identifying mark of who a person is. Christ, we are told, has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than the angels. With this understanding, we can start to appreciate the marvelous inheritance of Christ, that he has the authority and the nature of his Father. He has the character and the majesty and glory of his Father by inheritance. That is what makes him equal with his Father. That's what makes him the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And that is what Lucifer is attacking. You see, friends, why the Sonship of Christ is so important? You see why it's important to understand that Christ is the only begotten Son? Because if we don't, we really rob Christ of his inheritance. Does that extend to other things as well? What about the life of Christ? Does the Bible tell us anything about that? Is that part of his inheritance, being the Son of God as well? The scriptures answer this question for us. In John chapter 5 and verse 26, we notice the answer to this question. It says, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. The life that the Father has was also given to the Son to have. Now, what kind of life does the Father have? It's eternal, immortal life. The Bible says that the Son was given that very same life. That's the divine life of the Father.
It's given to the son. It's his by inheritance. And he's the only, be <coughs> sorry, he's the only begotten son. That's demonstrated clearly when Christ gave life to all creation. Let's confirm this again in another passage. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. Colossians 1, 19 and Colossians 2, 9. We read the following. For it pleased the Father that in Him, that's in Christ, should all fullness dwell. For in Him, that's in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see, all the fullness of the Godhead, all the glory and majesty of God dwells in Christ. And this was pleasing to the Father. Remember what we read in Proverbs together earlier, where Jesus says, I was daily His delight. You see, Christ was the rejoicing of the Father. And it pleased the Father that in His Son, His only begotten Son, all His fullness and all His majesty and glory should dwell. That is what makes Christ so special. And that is why Christ is the most acquainted with the Father. That is why Christ is the only one who can take us to the Father. That's why He can say, I am the way and no one else. And we must understand this in order to worship God aright. Don't forget the key point of looking at this aspect is so that we can have a true conception of God and a true understanding of how we can come to Him in worship. We saw that the Father is the only true God. He is spoken of in John, uh, Revelation chapter 14. And now we see the way to the Father is through His Son. And now we see why it is that the only way is through the Son. Because only Christ is known as the only begotten of God. And only Christ was actually begotten of God. You see, this point establishes for us the position of Christ on equality with his father. We read about that in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. It tells us, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Speaking of Christ, it tells us that Christ was not only in the form of God, but he was equal with God. We understand now what this equality is based on. It's based on the fact that He is the only begotten Son, that He was brought forth from the Father. That's a divine inheritance that Satan is seeking to steal from Jesus Christ by questioning His Sonship. That's why it's important to understand what the Scripture means when it says, the only begotten Son of God. But how far does this equality extend? Is Christ really equal to the Father? The answer is yes. And the answer is given to us by the Father Himself. This equality of Christ with the Father, possessing the same divine nature, possessing by inheritance a better name, is revealed to be so encompassing that in Hebrews chapter 1, we see how the Father describes the equality of His Son. Let's read it together and see what that means. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. But unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. What an amazing declaration. From the lips of the only true God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the living God, we hear that the position of His Son is that of divine equality. 
His son is called God. Make no mistake about it, friends. The son of the living God has the divine nature. His father identifies that by saying, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. But now we understand why Christ is called and referred to by that description. Remember, a few verses earlier we saw that Christ has that name by inheritance. This is the divine inheritance of Christ. That's why that passage says, Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. He is the Son, and his sonship is the basis of his equality. Now, does that mean that we honor Christ less because he is the Son? Certainly not. Christ is equal, and we honor him in the same way that we honor the Father. Jesus told us that in John chapter 5 and verse 26. Verse 23, I'm sorry. John 5, 23. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. We honor Christ in the same way that we honor the Father. This extends to our worship. Just as we worship the only true God, we also honor the Son in the same way. And as our worship goes through the Son to the Father, it is the way that the true worshipers will worship. You see, in order for Christ to be the way to the Father, He must be in a position where He can receive worship and bring that to the Father. That's why the Bible says we honor the Son as we honor the Father. And remember, we need to honor Him as the Son. We need to honor Him as He has revealed Himself to be, as God in heaven has revealed Him to be. And this is vital for our understanding. Let's look at our last question for this program, and we'll see why this is so important. Is it really vital that we understand Christ as the only begotten Son of God? How important is this? The answer is in 1 John 4, 15. It says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. You see, friends, confessing that Christ is the only begotten Son of God is how we can have a relationship with God, and how God can dwell in us, and with us, and how we can partake of His nature, as the Scripture says. This truth is so important, and it's come under such attack by Satan, particularly in the last days. That's why God sends a message, the three angels' messages, to alert the world to the true position of Him as the only true God, and the only way to come to Him through Jesus Christ. That's why the first angel's message says, Fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him. And we saw who that is, and we saw how we can come to Him in worship. Only through Jesus Christ, and knowing why Christ is in that position, is vital for our understanding of those heavenly things. As we continue in our series, we will look a little closer at how this issue of worship has come under severe attack and confusion by Satan. I pray you'll stay with us. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.